Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Christine Harada, the Senior Advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy in the Office of Management Budget. Christine, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Thanks so much for having me. Let me start with some basics. Uh, we've just kicked launched into fiscal year 2024. There's so much going on. What are some of those top priorities for OFPP? What are those things that folks should look out for from your office over the next you know, six, nine months or so? So for anyone that believes that government is a problem solver like me, and I think the majority of your audience base as well, it's certainly a very exciting time to be the federal leader of the acquisition workforce. And Honestly, I don't remember a time in our history when the president has leaned in more on the acquisition community to be a catalyst for addressing some of our nation's top priorities, strengthening cybersecurity, improving the competitiveness of U.S. industries, advancing equity, improving the management practices, mitigating climate risk. I mean, a lot of the priorities that this administration has laid out and its values are absolutely being also implemented through the acquisitions community as well. And, you know, as you know, with the president's management agenda, has laid out a multi-pronged strategy focused around people, data, and marketplace to ensure that the federal acquisition system is consistently delivering greater value to the taxpayer. So just to build on that a little bit more, we start with the people. We're working to build our best inspired, engaged acquisition workforce, and that of course requires an environment that attracts new talent and offers modern training and development opportunities where the acquisition workforce members actually build communities both inside and across federal agencies through networking and other learning opportunities. And the new certification process, the FATC or the Federal Acquisition Certification and Contracting Guidance, Christine's personal view is truly transformative because it establishes a common set of technical and professional competencies for both DOD and civilian agencies. And we're finally going to have parity with the DOD contracting professional certification, and that'll help facilitate mobility between DOD, civilian agencies, and industry. So truly very excited about that. Let's talk a little bit about that FACSI modernization effort, because this is something that, you know, really OFPP kicked off back in January. Like anything else, it takes a while to kind of really ramp up. What are some of those things you're seeing from it? What's the impact, even in the short time that you're seeing it having on the acquisition community? The implementation is going well, firstly. So the civilian agency contracting professionals and their leadership have been very supportive and very enthusiastic about this new certification. Everyone who's had the legacy contracting certification was automatically given the new certification so that the new classes and exam targets folks that are newer to the government or new to the contracting career field. And of course, once folks have the certification, they can get training at the time of need. So very much, much more just-in-time training kind of a model. They're able to chart their own career path all in conjunction, of course, with the supervisors. And our folks can already also take many of the DOD credentials as well. And so the senior procurement execs are super excited that we will soon have that parity and we're tracking the progress of the new certification through metrics on the number of training classes that are taken, how many exams have been taken, what's the pass rate of the exam, et cetera. And we're constantly communicating with our acquisition workforce community at all levels to ensure that we're understanding the impact that it is, the desired impact is actually being, you know, uh, felt amongst the workforce and ensuring that it meets the needs of all of the agencies. Can you go through some of those statistics or the measurements in terms of people taking them, pass rate, anything that stands out to you is to kind of show the impact? Because, again, I think a lot of this is it's great that you have it, but are people 
you know, you can lead them to water, but are you making them drink, so to speak? Yes, absolutely. So the numbers are still very preliminary. You know, we've got well over, I think the number is over 700 people that have uh, engaged in a lot of these trainings thus far. I don't know about the pass rates. I'd have to actually look that up, but that is, we're certainly seeing that in the numbers and they're ticking up in the right direction. While this is just, the, again, the beginning stages, getting people socialized about this, having them understand why this matters, how this works, I think that that's really the, the goal. H- have you been having conversations? You mentioned the senior procurement executives are very excited for this. Are you having conversations, obviously through the Chief Acquisition Officers Council, but in other ways to promote this? Hey, this is, this is here. Take it. Let's, let's move forward together. There's a couple of ways that we're doing a lot more engagements on that front. We have regular acquisition flashes and newsletters that we've got going out to the workforce on a regular basis. We've also ensured that we are having the conversation, certainly at the chief acquisition officer council uh, and the senior procurement executives as well. But also we are starting to highlight a lot of this type of work and the opportunities through our other engagements, whether it be at conferences, we're also ensuring that we're continuing on the messaging front with ensuring that we're building our best workforce. Generally speaking, and again, it's hard because everyone's at a different place, but are you getting any questions, any trends you're seeing about, hey, why should I take it or, or what do I need to know about taking it? Is there anything when you when you talk about the FACC and, and that institutionalizing what you're trying to do through it, are there any questions that are coming up? Because, again, with any training, I think a lot of people say, okay, this is where we're at today, but this is where we maybe need to go or want to go in the future as it continues to evolve. We certainly haven't felt or seen too much in the way of pushback, if you will. I mean, yes, change is always uncomfortable for folks and we have to make adjustments, et cetera. But I think in general, this is one of those things that it is very much embraced by leadership and workforce alike. Um, And I think part of it is also buttressed by the fact that there are so many changes coming down the pike, especially for the acquisition workforce. In particular, let's say the technology field, right? So many changes that are upcoming, whether it be emerging technologies, AI, what are the more innovative ways that we could be doing to help acquire these, you know, types of solutions for our federal agencies, et cetera. And so I think in general, it is absolutely viewed in a very positive manner. Kind of related to that, the um, federal employee viewpoint surveys, the Fed surveys that are conducted every year, for the acquisition workforce in particular, uh, over the past five years, we're grateful. The acquisition workforce has consistently responded more favorably than the workforce at large uh, to questions about feeling empowered to use good business judgment and meeting daily responsibilities of government service and the degree to which they feel supported, et cetera. And so in the most recent survey, I think it's FY22 survey, the differential is like 8%. So it's a pretty material difference above the average or the, you know, the rest of the, of the government workforce, if you will. So I like to think based on both the qualitative feedback that we're receiving as well as some of the quantitative numbers that we're seeing that the acquisition community does seem to be that they feel reasonably well supported and that they're open to having more of these types of trainings and development opportunities. The, the FEVS data is really interesting because, you know, I looked at this, uh, topic of acquisition workforce back in August and right as we got toward the end of the fiscal year. And we know that every year the poor the poor <laughs> acquisition workforce is overwhelmed by how much money gets ended up spending in that fourth quarter, specifically the probably the last, you know, 30 to 45 days. And, and one thing that came through just doing some research is the number of a- acquisition workers across the government is probably at the highest it's been in, in more than a decade. Um, do you think that because we've seen more people come in, and, and I know there's a lot of concern about the age, right? Jeff Kosis over at GSA 
uh, told me, you know, they have four times as many people over 60 than under 30 in, in the Federal Acquisition Service. And that's that's a big concern for them. More people over 70 than under 25. But do you get a sense that this modernization effort and, and the, the information on FEVs is, is really driving kind of the type of change in, in the acquisition workforce that more people want to be a part of it, want to stay longer because they realize the good work they're doing? And, and this FACC is one example of of how you all are changing to meet them where they are? Yes, absolutely. And I think that was an issue, certainly the dumbbell, if you will, of the distribution of the acquisition workforce, absolutely an issue uh, when I was in the Obama administration working at GSA and also still continues to be somewhat of an issue, although I don't think it's as dire as it was eight years ago. I'm also really excited by the advances that are being made to create a much more innovation-friendly acquisition environment. Again, back to the, you know, the technology evolution and the way the degree to which that is now fundamentally really powering a lot of the way that we're delivering services to our citizens. You know, for example, when I was here during the Obama administration during the healthcare.gov crisis, I remember hearing so many complaints about how inflexible the acquisition process is. And, you know, as you know, as well as anybody else, there's actually a lot of flexibility but there weren't as many efforts to encourage or capture that kind of innovative thinking. And so thankfully that's changing with a number of innovation labs and safe spaces, a robust knowledge management portal with the periodic table of acquisition innovations. And I do think that demographically speaking, the, you know, the more junior or the newer contracting folks who tend to be a little bit more technology savvy are much more embracing of these types of, of efforts. And I can't overstate the potential here. If you look at the periodic table of acquisition innovation or the PTAI, you'll see all sorts of examples of how our buyers are reducing, you know, bid and proposal costs. They're shortening time from proposal submission to award and efforts to promote that innovative mindset that values creative thinking, outcomes and risk management over just a rigid compliance kind of framework is really contributing to that greater sense of empowerment to problem solve uh, within the acquisition workforce. I'm glad you brought up the time during the Obama administration because during that uh, time, there was the Acquisition Innovation Council or uh, Acquisition Innovators who – senior executives who were there to promote uh, uh, innovation. And uh, it escapes me exactly the, the exact title that, that OFPP used for them. I think you, you probably do remember what I'm talking about. How is OFPP supporting innovation? Because I think the one big concern among all contracting officers and program managers is, you know, you get credit when something goes right, but if something goes wrong, oh, the 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 weight on their shoulders and everything, the, the building comes down around them. No, a hundred percent. And with the the warranted contracting officer community, obviously they can be very risk averse. And I think, you know, one of the many of the things that we're trying to do is certainly at our level. Number one, not just the engagement with the leadership and the workforce itself and encouraging, you know, more of this risk management kind of mindset and incorporating that through our training, but also trying to award reward for that. This also, you know, stems a lot from the data that we've been able to share across the entirety of the federal government, you know, as you and your audience base will likely very well recall, as for category management was really stood up during the Obama administration, and it absolutely remains a signature initiative for us. And that those policies and practices have really shaped around helping the government buy as a much more organized entity. And that lies very much at the heart of our ability to be able to meet our country's demands within today's constrained budget environment and by moving away from that model where everybody fended for themselves to a much more enterprise-wide approach, we've been able to avoid upwards of $90 billion in costs for taxpayers since 2016. 
And so for those reasons, we're continuing to work with agencies to lean on the strong stewardship management that category management promotes. And that, it, that I, in my view, I think is very much in alignment with a lot of the work around innovation. So how do we take the good work that's being done that's innovative? How do we help mainstream it? How do we help bake it into the overall category management approach so that it's it becomes a much more natural feeder, if you will, for better practices? Christine, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation. My guest is Christine Harada, the Senior Advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Christine Harada, the Senior Advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. I appreciate the fact you brought up category management because I was going to go there next around marketplace as another one of your, your big priority areas or focus areas. There's a lot of concern about category management and strategic sourcing and this term best-in-class contracts. Just generally, how is OFPP looking at these things? As you said, there's a lot of cost avoidance through category management. There's also a lot of concern about the downward pressure on on small businesses that category management and and best-in-class contracts are bringing. What are you all doing to help agencies strike that right balance? In our use of both category management and best-in-class contracts is absolutely pursued in a manner that is consistent with our equity goals. And I'm happy to report that spend to small businesses through the use of best-in-class solutions has actually remained high relative to the overall small business spend. And it's well above the 23% government-wide goal. For the best-in-class business uh, solutions, it is 38.5% small businesses. And so I recognize that there are you know, that there's a lot of perception or and probably lived experiences out there with respect to small businesses, you know, trying to figure out how do I get on the best in class solution, et cetera. You know, there's a lot of efforts underway to help increase the opportunities to small businesses through the establishment of new best in class solutions like Oasis Plus, Professional Services IDIQ, uh, Polaris, right, which is a small business uh, government wide acquisition for uh, IT. And, you know, we also issued an OMB guidance memo in 2022 for agencies to ensure that category management plans, you know, do not necessarily prioritize spending on best-in-class solutions at the expense of meeting socioeconomic small business goals and providing maximum opportunity to small businesses as best we can. And it certainly is, remains a very heavy point of emphasis and focus for this administration. Because as we use category management to build the overall strength of the federal marketplace, uh, we're also making really good progress to instill equity. So, for example, as you may know, and probably reported on last year, the Biden-Harris administration broke all sorts of records in its spend to small businesses in each of the four underserved communities. And we are absolutely super proud to be supporting small business growth and building that kind of generational wealth throughout the United States. And we're cautiously optimistic that we will continue to see upward trends when the FY23 data is finalized. So far, preliminary indicators is that we're doing pretty well on that front. One of the things when you talk about the small business spend when it comes to category management and best-in-class contracts, are you all tracking or or working with agencies to track some way the industrial base size, meaning, yes, 38.5% of those awards went to small businesses, but if that money went to, and you picked a number, 1,000 small businesses versus 5,000 or 7,000 small businesses, you're not necessarily making that pie bigger or better. You're just, you're limiting that pie because, well, you're on the small business contract, but I'm not. And and therefore, because OFPP and OMB are really pushing agencies to use these best-in-class contracts, 
that impacts my ability to actually play in this market. Even though the numbers look good, the number of contractors or awards to different contractors, that's a challenge. Are you tracking that? Are you looking at that? Because I think that's the big concern, not the dollars per se, but the numbers of contractors. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. And as you know, we're focused not only on the dollars, but also in the breadth and depth of small business participation in the federal marketplace. And in fact, I think our Jason Miller put it best when he said that the record-breaking number of applications to start new small businesses creates an imperative on the federal marketplace to be able to leverage that growth and supply chains that support agency missions and reverse the decline that we've been seeing since 2010. And to help meet that challenge, we released new guidance to strengthen management attention on new entrants. And I think what's particularly noteworthy is that this administration also deployed two tools to assist agencies with finding and measuring new and recent entrant participation, right? We've got the federal supplier base dashboard that helps agencies track their performance over time uh, by comparing the composition of the contractor base, as well as the uh, procurement equity uh, tool as well, so that you know we can ensure that we're doing that kind of appropriate outreach, et cetera. Uh, we've also appreciated very much your highlighting how we're taking advantage of the data and technology to help agencies make those inroads. And that's just, you know, a simple example of how we are trying to instill equity by moving towards a more high definition or like greater data integrated environment. Christine, I want to get into the data piece in a second. And, and maybe before I do that, it kind of uh, segues well. When you look at those tools and you're looking uh, at the data that comes from those tools, are you seeing more entrants? Are you seeing more, not just opportunities for small businesses, but is the industrial base starting to grow? Is there any data or any any kind of even feeling of trends as you look at this that says, okay, these tools and the efforts by agencies not to, just to go, okay, well, Christine's on the best in class. I'll just continue to give her so I can get my credit and, and those that 38% goes to 40%. But Christine is 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 more is lucky, but Jason doesn't get anything because he's not on best in class. Are you starting to look at the industrial base and say, all right, we're seeing some positive impact or is it maybe too soon? So it's a little early, but the early indicators are that we are indeed seeing good progress on that front. And some of those indicators include not just the contractor base, a number of companies, you know, where the dollars actually going to, et cetera, but also the in the aggregate amount as well. And I think that it is absolutely notable in this current environment, because we were dealt a very significant curveball in the acquisition community, as you may recall, in late July. The SBA 8A program was dealt pretty, you know, I think a pretty devastating blow through the Ultima Services Corporation decision. And as you said earlier, the fourth quarter and especially the last two weeks of the fiscal year are historically the biggest spending windows when it comes to small businesses and SDBs in particular. And historically, fun facts, federal agencies obligate roughly 40% of all small business spending in the fourth quarter and nearly one-fifth of uh, small disadvantaged business spending happens in just the final two weeks of the fiscal year. And so we were scrambling big time in a good way. And I'm very pleased with, you know, the overall outcomes, the efforts of the agencies, as well as SBA, really pulled together to be able to turn this around. SBA has done a great job certifying the 8A firms, meeting their agency's needs, as well as helping the firms in their overall community. And as of the beginning of this fiscal year, SBA said that there are over about 2,300 qualified entities that are eligible to receive work uh, with efforts uh, ongoing to requalify others in the program. And so those just kind of illustrate some of the, a lot of the work that's going on both behind the scenes as well as what may be visible for your audience base is that we're absolutely 100% committed 
to working with our federal agencies to promote the strategies that help to maximize use of small businesses. That number is really helpful to know that, you know, SBA obviously did a yeoman's work to get this done, giving the ultimate decision. And, and I can't say it came out of nowhere, but I think it definitely surprised a lot of people. And, and you know, when you get a decision like that and have to turn on a dime, it's it's definitely not easy. Let's go down that third path of data. You talked a little bit about the entities. You talked about the numbers of category management. The key piece to this, and we see this, uh, for instance, a, a GSA, where they're really kind of leaning on data to help drive decision-making from an OFPP perspective, how are you working not just with GSA but more broadly across government to ensure the acquisition workforce has the right data and the data is timely and accessible and able to help drive decision makings, again, whether it's small business or not? Obviously, without good data, even the best trained acquisition workforce professional is not able to make smart, value-based buying decisions. And I'm sure that you've heard additional fun facts or figures from our office, how many times the billions of acquisitions and pricing data points that are inaccessible to the workforce, and if that's shared, would absolutely put our buyers on a whole new negotiating level. We're going to be unveiling more about this in the weeks and months ahead, um, but I'm certainly absolutely excited to help boost the efforts towards a more centralized data management strategy that'll create a high-definition framework for sharing and analyzing acquisition data across the federal enterprise. And we're planning to make that information available to buyers through on-demand tools and resources that you would expect for the largest and most sophisticated buyer in the world. Christine, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation. My guest is Christine Harada, the Senior Advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Christine Harada, the Senior Advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. The other piece around data is when we talk about acquisition workforce as well as is how acquisition workers are being trained or educated to use the data, right? It's great to have access to it, but okay, do you understand how to do data visualization? What do the dashboards mean, right? Like I, I enjoy going to the data decisions dashboard that GSA puts out around uh, their GWACs and other multiple award contracts. Are you looking at data scientists and, and other data training for acquisition workers? So we certainly have our set of trainings and available to uh, through FAI, the Federal Acquisition Institute, as well as DAU, the Defense Acquisition University, um, to make that investment in the workforce. They have that training to keep up, you know, with the continuously evolving procurement environment that it is. Um, we also recognize, however, that sometimes, you know, the data science itself isn't something that the acquisition workforce is appropriately equipped or they may candidly not may not be the right people to pick that up. You know, so we're trying to look for how, how can we do that in a smart way? How do we make sure that we're partnering up the data science nerds with the acquisition and procurement nerds um, and make sure that they're, that we're marrying those up. If there are indeed folks who are willing to wear both hats because they're capable of being nerds in both capacities, that's something that we're certainly taking advantage of as well. Like we're working closely with also the folks over at GSA's Technology Transformation Service, 18F, and U.S. Digital Service to ensure that we're incorporating a lot of that kind of goodness, both on the technologist side, candidly, so that they understand how they could be, should be working with the various agencies, as well as the, the contracting officers and the CORs. As we look forward into 2024 and beyond and around federal acquisition, there's a lot going on. Uh, I'm sure acquisition, the acquisition workforce and folks involved in acquisition feel like there's always this ton of pressure and a ton of work that they have to get done. Talk a little bit about where what you hope to continue to the evolution of the acquisition community, how, how OFPP is, you know, we talk data, we talk marketplace, you know, we talked a lot of different things. 
what do you hope this acquisition community looks like a year from now, five years from now? Do you, do you have the kind of that strategic view that, that, that OPP has laid out? Yes, and I'll actually take it a little little bit even further. So as you may know, OFPP, our office, turns 50 next year. We were stood up in 1974 uh, by an act of Congress, and I think in the 50 years since it was first stood up, we've come a long way, just an incredibly long way from every agency fending for themselves to, you know, being and performing much more like an integrated buyer. There's obviously a lot more we could be, should be doing. And so a lot of what I have in mind for the next 50 years of federal procurement, if you will, is ensuring that we are continuing to invest in the acquisition workforce because then everything happens. Number one, ensuring that we've got the appropriate people and that we're equipping them and supporting them and ensuring that we're developing them uh, appropriately, uh, that we're also further strengthening and, and diversifying the supplier base, because if you don't have good market participants, like we're just not going to get the good kind of services that we as a federal agencies and our government enterprises need in order to be able to provide good uh, solutions to the taxpayers, as well as the citizens who are on the receiving end. And again, last but not least, all what's all underlying all of that is the data. And so I think a lot of the work that we're the groundwork that we're going to be laying this year around um, ensuring that much more centralized data uh, management strategies and sharing that is something that we are looking to focus on. Kind of occurred to me as as, as I'm thinking about all, all the work you have and laying out the um, acquisition of the future. OPP and, and the FAR Council have been you know incredibly busy publishing some new rules, proposed rules lately. A couple of years ago, I think I wrote a story that said there was uh, one new acquisition rule that came out in like 2017 or 2018. So it's good to see that the FAR Council is getting back up to speed. I know there's a little bit of a backlog. From your perspective, what is really standing out to you among all this action and, and effort that's going on from the FAR Council and how that's driving changes in the acquisition community? There's a couple of areas where I think, you know, we're really trying to push forward on. And firstly, Mission first, people always, the FAR Council staff are amazing. I'm very grateful that we've got a stellar workforce that's supporting a lot of the rulemaking efforts. Uh, we published three cybersecurity-related FAR rules. There were two proposed rules uh, required by an executive order for improving the nation's cybersecurity and an interim rule to facilitate implementation of the Federal Acquisition Supply Chain Security Act of 2018 to ensure that we're supporting agency supply chain risk information sharing. If those changes are required or necessary to ensure that the proper frameworks are in place to ensure that we're supporting that kind of information sharing, both you know across across federal agencies as well as with our industrial industrial base. Um, but also effectively implementing any orders, exclusion or removal orders, you know, and ensuring that there's an actual process to be able to do that as well. The second big area, you know, in alignment with the Biden-Harris administration's priorities is around sustainability and climate, addressing the climate crisis that we've got. You know, as you may have heard, in August, we announced the latest step to leverage the federal government's procurement power to create jobs, advance American innovation, and building sustainable federal supply chains through the Sustainable Products and Services Procurement Rule. That will help uh, achieve the President's goal of net zero emissions from federal procurement by 2050. And we've also just closed a public comment period for uh, another sustainable procurement rule. And of course, we have the disclosure of greenhouse gas emissions and climate-related financial risk rule uh, where the largest suppliers will be required to publicly disclose their GHG emissions. And I think that, you know, these are the very much the areas where I see us within the OFPP and the acquisition community writ large playing a very close partnership role with our 
agency frontline mission counterparts to be able to ensure that we're delivering on these priorities and ensuring that we're delivering value for the American people. I know all those rules got a lot of attention in industry. I'm sure you will hear about it if you haven't already heard about it, specifically the greenhouse gas emissions rule. I think that's a very big concern for a lot of people in industry. Are you and your team, Leslie Field, Matt Blum, and Joni Newhart and the, and the team, are they meeting with industry to try to understand concerns and try to uh, tweak or change the rule as necessary to to address some concerns? Because I think, as we saw just recently with the White House, uh, OIRA putting out uh, new regulations or new guidelines around thinking about the marketplace and competition, uh, there's a big concern that you know greenhouse gas emissions would in- inhibit competition, even though it's, it's, it's a trade-off. You're, you're helping the environment. You're moving towards net zero emissions. At the same time, it's the cost for this could make the government end up paying you you picked the number seventy percent more or whatever people want to you know say uh, g- give me a sense of, of of how what OVP's role to, to working with industry to listen to their concerns. We've been doing a lot of work and a lot of engagement with industry and other stakeholder groups. The rule itself, we firstly we extended the comment period for, by thirty days, so there's a total of ninety day comment period. We had over thirty eight thousand sources provide comments. You know, many of which included detailed discussion around the proposed use of standards, et cetera. We also have been working very closely, you know, with the Council of CEQ, the Council of Environmental Quality, uh, Council of Environmental Quality colleagues on this particular rule as well. And we think it's our view that this rule will help the federal government in analyzing and mitigating climate risks while ensuring that we're building a much more resilient federal supply chain. So it's not just about it's not just lip service. It's not about greenwashing or anything like that. It is very legitimately. And as we saw during the pandemic, what happened to our supply chain just as a result of that particular crisis, we were trying to prevent that type of crisis also as we were thinking through climate risks as well. I think it certainly is a very highly contested or hotly debated topic itself. And as you may have seen in the news over the weekend, California did sign into legislation or or, or into law, uh, the legislation requiring businesses that are doing Entities that are doing business in the state of California also need to start reporting their scopes one, two, and three greenhouse gas emissions as well. So it's not just the federal government that's taking these steps. You know, state large states like California are also taking these steps. And so, you know, it is our view. We're still trying to figure out uh, and do the analysis around the impact of it, but it's my view that this is it's just smart from managing our own supply chain and risks to how we're going to be delivering our missions. Christine, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation. My guest is Christine Harada, the Senior Advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Christine Harada, the Senior Advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. The uh, Biden administration on November 8th launched the Better Contracting Initiative. Let's just start at the beginning. What is it? What's your goals? Give me some. Give me the details. The Better Contracting Initiative is the next piece of that puzzle, and its goal is to ensure that taxpayers fundamentally get the best value for their money, namely through leveraging government data, expertise, and purchasing power to buy the goods and services that the government needs to serve the American people. And we do that via four different work streams. We're able to leverage our size and function much more as an organized buyer through using our acquisition data, leveraging lessons learned from buying experiences, eliminating price disparities, reducing 
post-award cost or modifications that ultimately end up costing both programs and taxpayer dollars, certainly last but not least, reducing the risks of inflated prices in sole source environments. So it sounds like this is really focused on getting the best price for the agencies. Uh, I was at a industry day from the Defense Information Systems Agency. They're focused on getting the best pricing. Is this something that's been talked a lot about and you've heard from the Chief Acquisition Officers Council and others saying, hey, getting the best price at the right time for the right volume has really been a struggle for agencies? I don't know that I'd say it's a struggle so much as we really want to do better and more, right? So we are leaps and bounds ahead of where we were, especially since if you think about it from the 2016 timeframe when I was here during the Obama administration with the amount of data that we have across the federal enterprise. And so one of the areas of focus that we're doing today or that we're launching today around leveraging data to be able to help get the lower prices and better terms that you just talked about is certainly one of the first pillars around that. And to that end, we're launching a new centralized data management strategy supported by a new uh, draft OMB circular to facilitate a more robust sharing and analyzing of acquisition data across the federal enterprise. It's not just about pricing, but also what are the terms, what are the conditions to be able to help provide that kind of context. Uh, It'll also include enhanced market research, vendor performance data, et cetera, to be able to, again, strengthen the agency's abilities to better negotiate their deals. We also will be undertaking an effort to negotiate common enterprise-wide software licenses. Uh, We're looking to improve the government's negotiation posture to help reduce the price variance, as well as securing more favorable terms and conditions. And of course, especially in this particular case, improving and making more consistent our cybersecurity posture across the entirety of the federal government. On the data piece, uh, this is uh, fascinating. Now, a lot of the work that the General Services Administration has done over the last few years with whether it's the transactional data reporting or their uh, 4P portal, are you leveraging or, or taking advantage of a lot of that initial work? Yes, absolutely. It absolutely does build on a lot of the work that uh, the Transactional Data Reporting Program or TDR program at GSA has been working on for a number of years we call it the high def framework or the high definition acquisition data framework. The circular that you will see posted online includes both a framework and a data environment that helps provide a little bit more of a coordinated approach to this. It also includes some governance information around how we're all going to be collecting, uh, working together collectively. Always excited for a new circular. So thank you for giving us something to, to get more excited about. The rollout of the data strategy Give me some basics of of who's going to lead it. Comes from your office or comes from GSA or Treasury Department? And then what are some of those kind of short-term goals around getting this data strategy in use, in in place, and people can, you know, other other agencies can start taking advantage of it? Yes, the policy first is going to be coming out first and foremost from us here at OMB. Um, Again, leveraging a lot of the lessons learned from various agencies that have actually been working on this. The framework will be supported by, again, the data, the much more higher definition acquisition data environment that'll be provided through the agencies. Uh, We've got a number of requirements in the circular itself that we're going to be working collectively with the CAO community to make sure that they are being implemented. Uh, The circular also includes requirements for agencies to very actively contribute Uh, to like existing knowledge portals on innovative techniques and emerging technologies and making sure that they are, that they're posting it and organizing it uh, in a publicly available manner, 
and sharing that across the system. And of course, working with other resources like FAI, as well as DAU to help build out some of those related skills uh, as a core acquisition workforce capability. The enterprise software licensing. Now, Christine, this is something that was tempted many times. Uh, over the years. And I think there's a little bit of frustration or a little bit of, uh oh, here we go again. First of all, how many times did you hear, well, you know, Christine, we've done this before and it didn't work. Did you hear that about this initiative before? And and what's different this time? Yeah, no, I, I certainly have heard that before. And I think, you know, a couple of things are really different about it first this time. I think number one, we collectively as a community have evolved to be much more cohesive in this regard. I think, you know, back in the day when we first tried it what, seven or eight years ago, at this point, we didn't have the information. We didn't have the data that we do now. We didn't have the governance model around that data. We didn't have the sharing culture that we really tried to inculcate through the last seven, eight years. We've also stood up an entity at GSA called the IT Vendor Management Office or the IT VMO. They have been phenomenal partners with us in working to help gather the contract documents and pricing information from agencies and really analyzing that. Thanks to their support, they're currently taking a look at over 700 contract documents and pricing data. Uh, we've assembled an integrated project team consisting of a group of 14 experts from 13 different agencies of different skill sets of contracting officers, procurement attorneys, you know, subject matter experts uh, with particular softwares, et cetera to develop that list of ideal government-wide terms and conditions. And last but not least, there have been increasing number of cybersecurity incidents associated with these types of software that we as a federal government can no longer really tolerate from a risk management type of perspective. Recognizing this is a whole the nation kind of issue, uh, but this is something that really, that candidly was one of the bigger hooks, if you will, or uh, instigations for this particular effort again. Did you also hear from vendors who, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago who were a little tepid on this now are like, yeah, if you can make it so I don't have to have 12 different contracts with the Army or 15 different contracts with the Interior Department and I can have one, that would save us a ton of time and a ton of effort. Is that also what's driving this? That we have certainly heard that uh, as well from our uh, stakeholder community, for which, by the you know, I'm very grateful because candidly, it also helped validate the experience as well. I don't see it was a driver per se, but I was very heartened to hear many other vendor community folks expressing the same thing as well because they it, it only benefits the vendor community as well to see you know reasonably standardized terms and conditions and the products that they could be should be selling to the federal government, um, and it should not have to be that we should make it easier the community as well. You write in the fact sheet, the Biden administration expects the results of the BCI to generate more than $10 billion in annual savings, cost avoidance. How are you going to measure the impact of these four initiatives? I know some of it can probably be yet to be determined, but what's the initial thinking about that $10 billion number when you're talking about you know a solid percentage of the procurement budget? We've been collecting that type of data through the the same the efforts that we're measuring the metrics that we're leveraging for the category management and best in class contracts. We certainly envision leveraging the same performance metrics, if you will, for certainly that for those kinds of that part of the effort itself. We're also, though, you know, still trying to figure out and looking to determine what the appropriate metrics might be for some of the longer term efforts thinking through and measuring about the outcomes themselves rather than just the outputs. Uh, so for example, some of the other elements within 
one of the uh, with respect to one of the other work streams, especially around like you know thinking through and getting contract requirements right the first time. You know, how do we think about both measuring and ensuring the overall quality delivery associated with avoiding or reducing costly after the fact contract mods? You know, we're going to be instituting a number of workshops through which basically we're leveraging a process the Department of Defense had created uh, where they use these facilitated workshops to basically do peer reviews of a lot of these uh, requirements and do that type of facilitated discussion, if you will. And so we will be working with GSA and a number of agencies to be able to support those agencies uh, in development of contracts for various professional services or other complex services, et cetera. That obviously is going to take time, and we are looking to see for the dollars invested in these particular efforts, how did that translate into overall performance? Same thing also with uh, the other work stream associated with getting better value out of our sole source and other high-risk contracts. For well over a decade, the DODs conducted peer reviews to mitigate risks, and I think that they've had some tremendous returns over that. Uh, over the past four years, the department has used its price fighters group. Uh, they've got a group of cost and engineering experts that are available to help the department avoid hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars over a four-year period. It's just completely paid off for us in a big way. And so I think that, you know, we can certainly continue to measure the cost avoidance and savings like this. Some of them will be, you know, more measurable on an annualized basis. Some of them take a little bit more time to get there. Christina, um... Christine, I know we're about out of time, but I just want to ask one last thing, which is about you had a meeting with industry. Can you tell us a little bit about that meeting and what was the reaction from industry? You know, a lot of the folks probably gave you the, oh, oh, here we go again. But it feels like, you know, there's, you know, you've, you've learned from some past experiences and you're trying to continue to improve upon them. Yes. Uh, we had a very productive conversation with many of our industry stakeholders. They, we actually didn't hear much of the, oh, oh here we go again. Uh, type of sentiment, if you will. I think, uh, you know, we saw a lot of really good head, we saw a lot of head nodding, not just because they were, you know, being yes people, et cetera, if you will, but I think given the very tight fiscal environment that we are facing, that this is something that they are uh, thinking very actively about as well. Relatedly, when it comes to shutdown, here we are again, facing another potential shutdown, vast majority of the brunt of these shutdowns are borne by the federal contracting community. And so they too have a very vested interest in ensuring that not only does you know Congress continue to do the work and appropriate the government, et cetera, uh, but also you know their livelihoods are absolutely partnered or intertwined with ours. And, and I am very grateful for, for both the stakeholder participants as well as the contracting community at large. All right. Well, Christina Harada is the Senior Advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy in OMB. Christine, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 